0: This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This
1: morning's scripture reading comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers.
0: Thank you. Please be seated. Again, good morning. Uh, In case you weren't here during the welcome and the announcements, I'm Ted Sin. I'm one of the pastoral staff here. And uh, in our sermon time, we've been going through James uh, topic by topic. There are several major topics or themes in James, and they kind of keep showing up uh, at multiple places uh, through the letter, and so instead of studying the letter from chapter one, verse one through the end of chapter five we 're just kind of taking each thread and working our way through kind of from start to finish within that thread. Our current thread is the topic of the rich and the poor. Uh, the rich biblically speaking are those who have more than they need, and the poor biblically speaking are those who have less. Than they need. Last week we started this thread in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It is James' foundational text on wealth and poverty. 1, 9 through 11 was not so much at all about how the rich. And the poor or, and the middle class, for that matter, are to interact with one another. It's not so much about community. It's more about how the rich and the poor and the middle class themselves interact with the gospel. The foundational teaching in James is very individualistic at first. It is sort of assess where you are. Uh, then interact with the gospel in a certain way. And this will then prepare you to move out into community appropriately. So, so James says the first lesson in the gospel um, is this, is that the gospel uh, humbles all of us and the gospel exalts all of us. It is reality. But then James says, beyond that reality, he says this to the poor, boast in uh, your exaltation. In order to withstand the temptations that come with the trial of poverty, uh, the poor are told to boast in or rejoice in or emphasize uh, the exaltation that they have in Christ. And at the same time, James says to the rich as individuals, he says, boast in your humiliation. In order for the rich to withstand the temptations that come within the trial of wealth, uh, James says, boast in, rejoice in, emphasize the humiliation uh, that you have in Christ. And so for this week on that foundation, today's passage, James is going to teach us how to interact with each other, how to interact with the rich and the poor in community. And it's probably better said this way. James is going to teach us how to interact with people who have more than us and how to interact with people who have less than us, uh, certainly in terms of money, but also other assets included. And before we even get started, I'll just summarize the sermon and the passage this way that as we get the gospel more and more or as the gospel gets us more and more, we will increasingly move away from those who have more than us and we will increasingly move towards those who have less than us. So we'll study it this way. First, a command. Second, one case study. Third, several contradictions. So a command, one case study, several contradictions, or if you're looking for a more benign word, uh, several inconsistencies. Okay? So first, uh, a command. Pick up with me in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Uh, Many Uh, Other faithful translations say, show no favoritism, show no discrimination. Partiality is a compound word. That means two words smushed together. And from what we can tell, this word was invented by the New Testament writers. Partiality is the combination of the word for acceptance and the word for face. And so it literally means to receive the face, to accept something according to appearances. This is what James is saying, don't be guilty of. Don't make judgments based on external appearances. Don't evaluate others. Don't assign value to people by mere externals. The sin of partiality, show no partiality, is the sin of treating people in different ways according to their external appearance or their worldly advantage. One of the consistent themes of the Bible is this. God is not partial. God does not receive according to external appearances. And God expects us as his people to imitate him in being impartial and that partiality and injustice is something he hates. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, the Lord is not partial, he takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Leviticus 19, uh, our call as the people of Christ, in response to his character, you shall do no injustice. You shall not be partial to the poor and you shall not defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge or evaluate your neighbor. New Testament, Romans 2.11, for God shows no partiality. And then our text, our call in light of God's character, show no partiality. Before we kind of move on uh, to the case study, you need to know this. The word partiality uh, in the Greek language is plural. It's literally partialities. It's really hard to catch the nuance in the English. It doesn't sound right, but it's something like this. Not with partialities of any sort must you hold the faith. So in other words, the command is much more broad and it's much more pervasive than we at first think. The temptation to partiality, the temptation to receive someone based on externals is not limited to to being rich and being poor. It's not limited to those dressed well and those dressed poorly. The command is pertinent to, to the skin color, to the height, to the weight, to the physical mailing address, to the job title, to the symmetry of a person's face, to the car they drove to worship. Show no partialities. Do not receive or accept based on any externals. A case study, one case study. And James could have gone any number of directions with this, but he goes to this timeless illustration of uh, interacting with those who are obviously rich and interacting with those who are obviously poor. Pick up with me in verse two, one case study. By the way, that's the fastest point we've ever had in the history of this church. (laughs) It's just simple. I tried to add. I mean, I'm a complex person. I tried to add to it. But I just couldn't figure out what to add. It's pretty point, pretty point blank. Pick up with me in verse two. We got a really long sub point coming. Don't worry. <laughs> if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, so if into your church service walks literally a gold-fingered man in shiny, bright apparel, gold-finger is the adjective for the word man, a gold-fingered man. So the description of the man does not include his name, does not include his family, his character, his gift mix, his experience, his wisdom. He is described exclusively by what he wears, by his status, by his appearance, The gold ring, if you know anything about Roman history, meant that he was a member of the equestrian class. He was the upper crust of society. And men in the equestrian class would walk around with their hand extended so you could see their ring. So before you ever knew a thing about them, you knew they had money. And before you ever knew a thing about them internally, you knew who they were externally. In walks a gold-fingered man wearing shiny, fabulous clothes. Keep reading. And a poor man, the word means one who crouches, one who cowers, one who is beggarly. In shabby clothes also comes in. He's describing a homeless indigent. Um, Here's the scene. You're on ushering duty. You're helping folks find a seat in the worship service. By the way, as far as I can tell, the only text on ushering in the Bible, so you gotta get this one right. Um, and, And in walks at the same time, a man of obvious wealth and status, worldly wealth, worldly status, and, and in walks at the same time a homeless beggar in tattered, mismatched, stained, smelly clothes. And, and the question James is asking is, where does your attention go? Where does your heart go? How do you respond? If you're like me, nine out of 10 times, if not 10 out of 10 times, my heart and my feet move towards success wealth and status verse 3 and if you pay special attention if you look upon with care if you give preference to the one who wears the fine clothing and if you say you sit here in a good place a lovely place a beautiful place and if you say to the poor man I'll just stop for a second what's missing in the text James gives an intentional imbalance. He, he's saying something by not saying something. So let's review. The usher looks at and speaks to the rich. The usher speaks to the poor. What's missing. He's not looking. The poor man is not even the worth, the glance of our eyes. And if you say, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, literally sit under my footstool, a physical impossibility, but a great description of our hearts when in the presence of the poor, get so underneath me, you're invisible and stay there until I need you. Translation, be my servant. Go to a place that honors me. The rich we honor and pay special attention to, and the poor, verse 6, we dishonor and ignore. And James says, this is just one example, one case study of partiality. And he says, if this is how we respond to the wealthy and the social elite, and if this is how we respond to poverty and the social outcast, verse 4, have we not then made distinctions among ourselves and become judges with evil? thoughts. James is inviting us, verses one through three, all together. He's inviting us to imagine ourselves in a variety of situations where two people walk into our lives. One has more of something than we do, more of something that, that does give them an advantage in the world. And one has less of something than we do, less of something that would give them an advantage in this world. And James says, where does your heart go? Where do you go? To whom are you drawn? The the thing that they have more or less of, it could be money, it could be a social network, it could be physical attractiveness, it could be age-specific toys from a Wii to a boat. And he says, where do you go and why? Nine out of ten times, we are drawn to the one who has more because we think in time their advantage will bring us advantage. You're welcoming folks at the door one Sunday morning and a rich person, a rich beautiful person asks you to help them carry in some heavy boxes to the children's ministry and a poor less beautiful person asks you to do the same. Who do you help? Well, I presume if you're like me, you help both. But who do you help with joy in your heart? You're loitering around after the service today. Who are you drawn to? Who do you hope is drawn to you? Who do you invite to lunch? Who do you hope invites you to lunch? Who do you play volleyball with? Who do you hope invites you to play volleyball? Who do you invite to your kid's birthday party? Who do you hope invites you to their kid's birthday party? You're at a national networking meeting for, for your job, and you've never met anyone in the room. You're at a social gathering with other singles looking to mingle. How do you decide how to use your limited time in that space? Is our first layer of evaluation not based on externals? And you say, Ted, we have to do this. We can't possibly make it. This is how the world works. And I say to you exactly, this is is how the world works but not the kingdom of God my guess is that unless we're proactively and aggressively and intentionally working against this, the inclination to make judgments based on appearances, uh, the the, the push of our heart to just make evaluations based on externals, that that we are just falling prey to it over and over and over. If we're not intentionally and aggressively and proactively working against it, we're floating down the lazy river of culture. And James says, verse 4, It's evil. It's wickedness. So, a command show no partialities. Uh, one case study of the command by James, me teasing it out to some other places, but now I have to have you focus your mind back in on James's line of thought. He left the broad command in verse one. In verse two and three, he gave us a, a scenario that involved the rich and the poor, and now he is staying on that topic. And, and third point, several contradictions, several inconsistencies. James is saying to his original audience and to us, when we honor the rich and dishonor the poor, we're guilty of the sin of partiality and injustice. And James tells his audience that the impulse, the decision, the habit, the tendency to pay special attention to the rich and to ignore and dishonor the poor is not only a sin, but it is a contradiction of three realities. It contradicts the kingdom of God. It contradicts our own experience in our context, and it contradicts our our experience of Christ in the gospel. Number one, contradiction, number one. Inconsistency, number one. Siding with the rich over the poor contradicts our experience of the kingdom of God. This is the longest point by far. It's intellectually and spiritually rigorous, and it's gonna offend 90 to 95% of us. So I want you to pay very close attention so that we might be offended. Verses 4 and 5 are about contradicting the kingdom of God. Read again with me verse 4. This is the then statement. 2 and 3 is an if statement. If you give special attention to the rich, if you dishonor the poor, then, verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? First, what is James not saying? James is not saying that the act of making distinctions is wrong. You have to get this. This is huge. He is not saying making distinctions is wrong. We read show no partiality and then we automatically assume that James is saying don't make distinctions. That's not what he said. Distinction is the same word for judgment in James and in the rest of the New Testament. James is not saying uh, making a judgment is wrong. What does he say? He says have you not made distinctions with evil thoughts or with wicked reasoning? Thoughts is a word for internal reasoning. The Bible does not teach that making judgments is wrong. It does not. The judgments we make are either right or wrong depending on the reasoning or on the values that underlie that judgment. Now Jesus and James and the Bible do say don't be judgmental. So don't look down on someone because you see see sin in their life. Don't elevate yourself because you perceive holiness in your own life. So the Bible says don't be judgmental. But the Bible, Jesus in John 7 specifically, says you have to learn how to make righteous judgments. Don't be judgmental, but learn how to make judgments. To the crowd, he says, do not judge by appearances. Same word as verse 4, do not make distinctions by appearances. Sounds awfully familiar, but judge with right judgment. The most literal translations say judge with righteous judgment. Don't be judgmental, condemning, and proud, but judge righteously. Judge with kingdom of God reasoning. Making distinctions is part of being human. What underlies those distinctions is what makes it right or wrong. Keep reading verse five, prepare to be offended. Listen, my beloved brothers, he wants our attention. This is crucial to James. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Question mark. James is asking them. He's saying, look at your experience. He's not so much telling them anything as he's asking them to consider your experience. He says, listen, when God had a choice, who does he choose? When God is going to pay special attention to someone, when God is going to extend favor and grace and honor beyond what someone deserves, who does he choose? The poor in this world. Verse six, but you have dishonored the poor man by implication who God has honored. James is saying, Acknowledge the contradiction your choice is to the kingdom of God. If you're going to give special treatment to someone if you're going to go above and beyond justice into the realm of favor and grace, if you're going to give someone something they don't deserve, if you're going to make distinctions or evaluations, don't use wicked reasoning. Don't use the reasoning of this world. Don't use the arithmetic of Satan based on appearances. Use righteous reasoning. Use the reasoning of the kingdom of God. Use the arithmetic of God, which is this. God chooses to give faith. God chooses to give his kingdom. God chooses to make rich forever the poor in this world. Luke 6, verse 20. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, period. It's it's God's word, not mine. I sit in Moses' seat, not as one who knows how to obey such things as these, but one who's been asked by God to tell you about them this is God's word not mine now my guess is this biblical teaching this incredibly scriptural teaching is potentially offensive to all of us for at least at least three reasons we're potentially offended by the reality that God chooses we're offended by the reality that when God makes distinctions he chooses the materially poor And by the way, does that mean since I'm rich, I'm out? And we're offended. And if we're really sharp, paying close attention, we're saying, is that not partiality, which he's commanded us to not be? So we'll uncover them in turn. First offense, first potential offense, God chooses who to save. That was not a question, that was a statement. God chooses who. Who to save? James uses a very common New Testament word, chooses, to describe the reality that behind every conversion to Christianity is God's choice. Every expression of faith is God's gift. Every genuine believer has been brought to life by God. I'm not just saying this because I'm ordained in the Presbyterian church. I'm saying this because if you're gonna grasp what James is saying, you have to understand God chooses. Ephesians 1 God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, his want, his desire. We're not gonna spend any more time on that. Yes, he chooses. Second offense, when God makes distinctions, he chooses the materially poor. And does that mean I'm out since I'm rich those of us who have been in the church for a while those of us who have been rationalizing away these passages for some time those of us who have grown up rich white, reformed and educated those of us who have spiritualized the teeth out of this passage right now we're thinking what about Zacchaeus he was rich and there's Levi the tax collector he was rich, Joseph of Arimathea, rich Lydia, seller of purple, rich what about them? Huh? 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 Good for us. Good for us. We found the needle in the haystack. Pat ourselves on the back. Uh, Of course, James is teaching a trend. Of course, he is teaching a generalization. The text doesn't say God only chooses the poor, but it is a strong trend. It is a strong enough generalization that James doesn't even feel it necessary to mention the other side of it, the very much smaller side of it. Okay, okay, God does choose to save a few rich people, but for every Zacchaeus in the New Testament, I'll give you a thousand poor people. All of the masses that followed him around that he fed who had no food. Zealots, poor and oppressed, wanting to bring the kingdom through a war, poor. Listen, we have to get out of our rich, educated, socially elite, reformed bubble and realize how many genuine believers are poor, uneducated, oppressed, and persecuted on some level for their faith. This week, I called a handful of men and women that I respect. And I said, what are the percentages? What do you think is the percentage of rich and poor? I asked mature and thoughtful men and women who travel the world, who know church history, who interact with multiple denominations. And I said, what percentage of genuine believers are poor today and historically only one? Everyone guesstimated, 85%. Everyone else, 90 to 95%. We can't possibly know because we're not God, but I guarantee you that's a much higher percentage than what you were thinking. James is saying, when you pick the rich... When your heart and your feet move towards the rich, away from the poor, nine out of 10 times when you pick the social over the rescue mission, nine out of 10 times when you pick the sexy, connected person over the plain, ostracized person, you pick opposite to God. You just need to know that it's a contradiction and it's inconsistent and it's an opposition. While James simply mentions the much larger portion of the truth, the Apostle Paul says directly 1 Corinthians 1 Listen to God's choice and to God's distinction. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose the poor and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And we're like, why? Why does he do it that way? Paul supplies at least part of the answer in verse 29, 1 Corinthians 1, so that no human being, might boast in the presence of God. Lowly brother, boast in your exaltation. Rich brother, boast in your humiliation. We're the needle. This church is the needle in the haystack. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He never said that about poor people. And Jesus was content to leave it there. He did not think he needed to qualify. He did not think he needed to caveat it. He didn't have a second part of his statement, but his disciples were so unnerved and astonished and they kept pestering him about what he taught. He said this, with man, salvation is impossible, but with God, it is possible. All things are possible with God. So yeah, rich people can be saved, but we're the loophole. And the hole is the size of the eye of the needle that we found in the haystack. God delights especially to shower his grace on those whom the world has discarded and on those who are most keenly aware of their inadequacy and their need. The preponderance of Jesus' concern is shown for those who are at the bottom of the world's heat. But James says, when we pay special attention to the rich and dishonor the poor, there is a contradiction with our experience of the kingdom of God third layer of the offense. You say, is God's choosing of the poor not partiality? Is that not injustice? You may be asking, is James asking the original audience and us? I know you're asking this because y'all are so bright. I would not possibly come up with this question. Is James asking the original audience and us to give up one form of partiality to the rich for another form of partiality to the poor? And you're saying, Ted, I recall that when you read in Leviticus 19 that you said God commanded for us to not uh, be those who do injustice, but to not be partial partial to the poor, and to not defer uh, to the great? And, And is James teaching in this text about God's choice, partiality, and injustice? Great question. Let me commend you for bringing it. It's a good one. First, the Bible consistently teaches these truths right next to each other all the time. Number one, don't be partial. Number two, God chooses who he wants to save. Number three, God significantly tends towards the poor. Listen again to the phrases from our call to worship from Deuteronomy. The Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples. And by the way, when God picked Israel, they were poor slaves in Egypt looking foolish and oppressed. Next verse. The Lord is not partial. He takes no bribe. He executes justice. (laughs) And so I've already... I've already answered this objection. I've already spoken to this, but indirectly. So let me say it very plainly here at this point. If you think God's election primarily of the poor is unjust, you have to make a distinction between justice and grace. Justice, giving people what they deserve, is something God does and something he commands us to do. Show no partiality. Grace is giving people something good they don't deserve, paying special attention to someone, giving favor to someone. This is the realm in which God makes distinctions. All humans are to get justice and that that God wants all humans to get what they deserve. Not more than they deserve and not less than they deserve as image bearers of him for better or for worse. That's justice. But only those of God's choosing. Who tend to be poor receive God's special saving grace. Now, I told you that would be the longest subpoint. It was. It was actually longer than the first two points combined. But I've told you that James says there are three contradictions, there are three inconsistencies when we honor the rich over the poor. The decision contradicted the values of the kingdom of God. But second, the action contradicted, contradicted their own experience of reality. I call this the common sense contradiction. James essentially asked them, how's that going for you? Verse 6 in the middle through 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And James is saying this. He goes, I know why you're tempted to over-honor the rich in hopes of getting an advantage with them. I know why you're tempted uh, because you want to try and curtail the oppression. I know that why you're tempted because you want to be included with them. But James asks a question that, that must have made a bunch of sense to them because it's just an assumption for him. He's just saying, saying, how's that working for you? Are you getting what you want? Are they not still oppressing you? Are they not still dragging you into judges who they have in their back pocket? Are they not still taking your possessions and even you? Are they not still blaspheming the name of Jesus? We don't have enough details to really go beyond this farther, but I think it's at least worth asking the question. As we trend towards those who have more than us, as we gravitate towards those who have money and looks and connections and toys, as we move towards them, are we getting what we want? And if we're getting what we want, are we getting what we want? Are we getting what we want? Looks, money, toys. Are they really sharing? Do we really have what they have? And if we are getting what we want, are we getting what we want? Joy happiness, life, and contentment. I think that's what James is asking them and us. Lastly, and in conclusion, our heart's reflex towards the rich is in contradiction to our own personal experience of the gospel. We're gonna close this way. Look back at verse one. My brothers, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, show no partiality. James is saying this, making distinctions based on appearance is not only wicked, but it's incompatible with how Jesus has treated us in the gospel. What is the gospel? When Jesus the Lord of glory, the Lord of weight, the Lord of significance, the Lord of what matters, the Lord of what's valuable. When Jesus moved towards us, did we have more than him or less than him? Could we advantage him in any way by him associating with us, or did we only disadvantage him all the way to the cross? When Jesus moved towards us in the gospel, were we rich or were we poor? In the economy of what matters, in the realm of holiness and moral perfection, were we rich or were we poor? We were spiritually bankrupt. Jesus, filthy rich forever, became poor so that we might become rich forever. When Jesus moved towards us, were we dressed in splendid clothes or filthy rags? Filthy rags. Even our best deeds were like soiled garments in his sight. Ironically, this term for fine clothing, it's, it's said of what the angels wear in heaven, and it's said one other place of a human being. The Roman soldiers arrayed Jesus in fine clothing to mock him. When Jesus, who was homeless in his ministry, finally put on wealthy clothes or had wealthy clothes finally put on him, it was in his shame and his suffering for us in our place so that we might be dressed in the robe of his righteousness forever. In... in, On the cross, Jesus took off his eternal golden ring as the son of God and he gave it to us and he he took our place as the enemy of God and he sacrificed his life for us. When he gave us the ring, did we have more than him or less than him? Can you hear the father in Luke 15 saying this to the one who repents? About the one who repents, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let us eat and let us celebrate. When Jesus moved towards us in the gospel, were we beautiful and attractive? Or were we gross and unattractive? He who knew no sin was marred with our sin so that we in him might become beautifully righteous before God. We'll close how we began, that as we get the gospel more and more, or as the gospel gets us more and more, we will increasingly move away from those who have more than us and increasingly move towards those who have less than us. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for the gospel. We do thank you that I thank you that where I find myself today, which is guilty, is exactly where I need to be for you to save me. I thank you that you do not turn your nose up at stubborn, rebellious people like me, but that you love us and pursue us and chase us down and massage your love and your grace and your redemption into our hearts. And you lift up our heads, call us the children of God. God, I thank you for your mercy. It looks more rich and beautiful. Your grace looks more extravagant than ever to me from where I stand right now. And I thank you for it. I thank you also, Jesus, that you have said that you will take up residence inside of us, that you will live in us. You will cause us to live more like you. Lord, we ask for you to lead us, to guide us, for you to cause the old to go away and for the new to grow. God, I pray that this church will become more like an expression of your kingdom. May we not be the loophole and the needle in the haystack. May we be a representation of what you value and of what you're moving forward and what you will do forever. God, it sounds exciting and scary. We will need you. We will need your grace. We will need your power. We trust you that you're enough for us